What's going on guys, AJ here back again with another episode of the E1B2 podcast. So today we have an organizational psychologist who is passionate, maybe more passionate than me about all things employee experience and improving the human experience at work. She's the CEO and founder of Matley Solutions, which is a human resource uh, management consulting firm that measures workplace inclusion and trains majority group members slash leaders to better create a workplace culture where everyone can thrive. She was amazing. This episode today was one that I was waiting for. Those that know me, I kind of coined myself as a non-official kind of organizational psychologist type guy in this space. There's a lot of things that I focus on that are very psychology based, very emotion and human based. And uh, I do have a, 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 a certain perspective and points of views around that that I think that I think kind of go right up her alley. And that's why I was so excited to bring on Victoria today. This episode, guys, goes in a lot of different directions. We dive deep into diversity and inclusion. We dive deep into the themes that I think every single founder, executive, first time people leader, seasoned VP of people leaders should understand about organizational psychology and so much more. So thank you so much, Victoria, for coming onto the podcast. And thank you for all the listeners, all the people that have downloaded and subscribed this podcast. You guys are amazing. You guys are making my dreams come true. And I could not thank you enough. So again, today's episode is really one that I feel gets super nuanced and super detailed in certain areas of employee experience human experience, organizational psychology, and DE&I, and I'm super excited about for you guys to be able to listen to this and just this content and figure out different ways to take what we are saying today and apply it into your business. So please, get your pen ready, get your notepad ready, get your iPhone ready, get your note tab ready, get whatever you need to get ready to be able to write down some notes and just the details and the information and the perspectives that we're going to share and enjoy today's episode. Thanks so much. Uh, it was really um, exciting for me to kind of get you on here because, again, I know a lot of the work that you do is around DEI, but I know also, you know, you do have a background in organizational psychology, and I, I am very interested with that, and, I, and I'm very interested around the impact that can have on an organization, small or large. So I, I guess for me, this is selfishly. Um, I really kind of want to just understand at a very macro level, you know, what is industrial organizational psychology, not from the technical um, academia uh, uh, definition. What is it for you? Like when you decided to go down that path and then inevitably got your degrees and got your credentials, now kind of getting into the work and actually practically using it day to day, how would you describe it if you were talking to a startup leader, if you were talking to a first time manager, if you were talking to someone that hasn't really heard too much about it, how would you describe it? And what would you explain the impact it is? Yeah, absolutely. So organizational psychology, it's taking a lot of the same concepts that someone who has their MBA or went to business school would, would know about, right? How do we lead well? You know, um, how do we you know, hire the best people, train them properly, get them to, you know, produce high quality work. But instead of looking at that final outcome at, at, from a financial standpoint, we look at it from a, from a people standpoint. So, you know, how can we use science to help people learn and grow and be their best selves at work? And of course, you know, my job security and my ROI, that, that does impact the bottom line. You know, we know that, you know, losing an employee costs anywhere between three and five times what their annual salary is to replace them and, and you know, retrain someone else to do their role. And, you know, by investing in our people, we are investing in our businesses. Um, but organizational psychology and myself as an organizational psychologist, I take a very, you know, firm approach. You know, I, I care about people and profit, but in that order. And, uh, you know, companies bring me in to essentially help improve the human experience at work because companies that care about their people are going to win ultimately. So that's how, that's how I talk about organizational psychology. Now, now, so that's, that was a good, that was a good kind of layman's terms definition and kind of breakdown. Um, let me go directly here. So I, I think, 
we talked, I don't know, what was it, four weeks ago? What was it probably like four or five weeks ago when we first kind of connected and finally got on a call? Mm-hmm. Um, and I was kind of breaking down to the work that I do. So the E1B2 podcast is connected to the E1B2 collective. Um, and, and what we do, like I, like I kind of explained to you, is we're kind of working with some of these newer companies, these smaller companies. And so from, from that lens, right, because that's the majority of, of, of the, the listenership here, not to say that there aren't high-level executives, big brands that are listening as well, but, but from that lens, because as I was doing my research, I was finding that bigger brands, right, bigger organizations, and even certain industry-type organizations were, were adopting and actually bringing in an organizational psychologist in-house or, or, or outsourcing these opportunities to come on and conduct research. So what are a couple areas of the work that you do that you feel are super essential and, and core principles that you would say like a first-time founder getting his or her business off the ground, 40, 50 people deep, what are some, a couple areas that, that you personally, if you were to work with a company of that size, were to say, okay, you guys need to think about these two or three things. Is it just the research? And then how does that research turn to practical application for, for those startups and for those small businesses? Yeah, and even more specific than that is like, are we approaching people taking a, a database, a metric-based, a competency-based approach, right? So if you're a 50, 40, 50 person startup, you know, you're probably about to start hitting some high growth, right? And so yep. how can you make sure that not only are you hiring the right people, but even a step before that, that you're analyzing the job in such a way that you know what you're hiring those quote unquote right people to do. Um, you know, what are, what are the basic skills and knowledge and abilities that people need to have to do the job well, you know, and really breaking down a job, making it a science out of, you know, looking at what are these core components of what makes a good employee in this specific role and how can we then hire for that person? How can we then train that person figuring out, you know, what skills are, are trainable and which ones aren't because, you know, if someone has, especially in startup mode, like there's so much potential, right. And like people need to do so many things that are outside of their typical job description and everyone's in startup mode. Um, so what, what things can you train later and what things do you need to hire for right now? You know, organizational psychology has, you know, a hundred years of experience perfecting the art of, you know, personnel and, and how to really, yeah, create a science and a matching the right people into the right role. So that'd be my first area. And then the second one is where I've mostly been living, you know, for the last four years, but it's in the, the DE&I space, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And even though there's plenty of people who do this work who aren't organizational psychologists, the, the science I, I bring to this area is really looking at, you know, how can we operationalize and define these, these kind of idealistic, aspirational terms, you know, DE&I for like, a place where everyone feels like they belong. And, you know, we have a, a workforce that represents the diversity of our, of our customers to provide, you know, better services and products and all that is great. And those are beautiful visions and outcomes, but how do you actually then execute on that? You know, how, and I think it's where a lot of people who are being hired into new DE&I positions, whether coming up to the company or being an external hire, you know, they're, they're ready to create that world, but, you know, then when the rubber hits the road, how do you start? And that's where organizational psychology can really come in and help accelerate, you know, that, that exact problem, you know, and, and, and get on track. So like figuring out for me, you know, I define diversity as how, how we see each other and inclusion is how we treat each other. And as an organizational psychologist, I know how to isolate things down to like the most basic behaviors, right? So how I can, I can take inclusion and break it down into something that can be measured, something that can be tracked and something that can be developed and then also assessed, you know, are we becoming a more inclusive organization in our day-to-day interactions with one one another? And so um, that'd be my second area is like, how are you, you know, creating your workforce so that, you know, people are encouraged uh, and, and rewarded for, you know, using inclusive behaviors with one another to really create that culture that will be, you know, the, the fabric of the success of your company or, or your people in the makeup and, and creating that diverse and equitable inclusive, inclusive workplace. So that that's my second 
And then the third, uh, learning and development. So uh, I've been doing DE&I for four years. I've been doing learning and development for over 10 now. Um, that's really what got me interested in industrial organizational psychology. Um, I see training and learning and development and uh, these opportunities for you know individual transformative growth, which not only gives our employees and our leaders the skill sets they need to do their job, but it also is a vehicle for helping people be the best versions of themselves. You know, I say my, my life's mission is to help people in the workplace treat themselves and each other better, better. And I feel like learning and development is, is my key vehicle for doing that. So um, that stems all the way back to when I was in service industry and bartending, you know, and I had worked at, you know, dozens of different bars and restaurants and the training was always, how do you operate the computer and, and what's in, how we do make our margaritas here and what's on our menu. It's never, how do you deal with the stress of, you know, bad bosses or drunk customers or a really awful table um how do you deal with that stress and not let it ruin your night and not let it you know increase your your cortisol levels which is literally a, a killer in our body causes you know heart disease and cancer and you know like and there's a study that came out that showed restaurant workers have more biological stress on the job than 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 surgeons right and so why don't we get any sort of skills and these skills aren't hard right it's taking it's taking a couple deep breaths and, you know, using uh, deep acting techniques instead of surface acting, meaning like if you have to be in a good mood, how can you put yourself in a good mood so you're more authentic when you go to that table with that fake smile plastered on your face? How do you how do you make more work more fun for yourself? And there's simple things that we can do to not only you know make a better experience for us as humans in the workplace, but also better experience for our customers and for our coworkers and just, you know, ultimately impacting that bottom line that I know businesses care about. Um, and I help them do that by, by helping improve the human experience and, and for that, for that end. So, so that's my soapbox. <laughs> no, 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 no. All, all three of those were amazing. And so if, if I can package it up a little bit and, and kind of help maybe somebody that will be listening, um, because what I've seen, right, what I've seen, which is really consistent, which is not so much a good thing is they hear the advice that you're giving, they hear your perspectives and then they leave it there. And what I mean by that is, like, for example, the, the, bar, the bar situation, the bartender situation, the, the, the restaurant server example that you were giving. There are so many circumstances around what you were saying where that server or that bartender is dealing with certain elements that the stress levels are getting incredibly high, um, anxiety may be taking over. The research points to that. And then what I've seen is I'll, I'll, I'll see a manager or a founder or a leader and know that research is that research. And then I don't see anything happening past that. And what I mean by that is I don't see any organizational behaviors and pro policies and best practices and actual things happening on the backs of that research. And that's been, been my biggest issue with this, with this space of employee experience for the last better half of the last five or six years, as I've dived deep into it, which is, you know, I look at all the leaders that I've worked with and I look at all the things that I've seen and it's like, it's like they're checking this weird box where they bring in someone like yourself for a half of a day or they listen to a podcast or they watch a YouTube video or they attend a conference or maybe even internally they have an organizational psychologist, they have an HR manager and they get this data, you know, kind of, you know, directed towards them and they understand it at a logical level, but then I don't see any actual behaviors or adjustments or shifts in the policies or the structures or the way they interact with the employees. So with that last example you gave, what would then be an example? I already have some, but I'm going to give it to you because I want you to kind of uh, be the, uh, be the little celebrity today. So what, uh, wh what would you say off the backs of that research, right? Off the backs of that research would then be a behavior, a change, a shift, a policy adjustment, some sort of a, a tactic, that a leader would have to put in place knowing that information. Because I'm sure you've seen where they see the information, they hear the research, and they think the fact that they learned it is enough, and it's not enough. You need to take yeah. that research, you now need to sit with your managers, you need to make new plans, new tactics, new practices, new things you're gonna do to really impact your people off the backs of that. So do you have any suggestions, thoughts, perspectives on that? Yeah, I mean, well, first is I've I've seen that happen just so many times, and and especially um, from the perspective of of an employee, right? And we take this time to 
do the engagement survey, we get the results back, we have a team meeting to talk through the results. And we even got to the point where we started like action planning, like what that change would be. But then it never went anywhere. And there was never any accountability. And you're right, it was never made made into some formal change or policy or practice. Um, So an example of, you know, what I've seen work in, in once again, specific to the DE&I space. Um, and I say that so quickly, DE&I, diversity, equity, and inclusion for all those listening out there. And then there's also D&I, diversity and inclusion, but the equity has been added to really get at the, the, the practices and, and the policies and the power and the systems behind, you know, um, what our everyday interactions are, which inclusion and also, you know, our, our diverse, our, our demographic differences uh, or diversity of thought that we all bring as, as unique humans to the workplace. But um, an example to answer your question, Anthony. Um, so I do, um, you know, survey research or for the next research we're talking about to uncover, you know, what are our inclusion gaps? Like what are some gaps in what we know are qualities of an inclusive workforce and what are we not seeing at this particular company? And some uh, something that comes out time and time again is that employees don't feel like that they have, that their voices are being heard, that they don't have fair amount of speaking time, their fair share to be able to share their perspectives as, a, a, you know, an equal seat at the table. And so if I were to get that data and also, you know, I, I can look at it at the, at the team level, at the group level, and I can, I can point and show a leader and say, hey, you know, nine out of 10 people on your team feel this way. You know, this is a low score. Um, here are some core strategies on how you can just, just change meetings. Let's just, just, let's just start right there. Right. I think, I think people get these results back and feel like, oh my gosh, well, that's a culture change. Or that's like my, I have to change my entire communication approach. Or I need to like, you know, spend all this time to like learn every little thing about all my individual employees, which like, by the way, leaders, you should be doing in the first place. But I get how whenever you first get this information, it can feel really overwhelming. So let's start one place. Let's start in meetings. How do we operate meetings? How can you lead meetings to be more inclusive, to create the the safety, the psychological safety to make people feel like they are uh, able to speak up and share and not be interrupted or not be penalized for um, sharing some sort of counter view, especially. And so what words can we be using? What processes can we be putting in place? And especially with virtual meetings right now, you know, like a lot of people, and I struggle with this myself when I was on a virtual team was I couldn't really get a word in edgewise. I, I like having a moment to really a listen and then B think and process what my then recommendation would be. And it felt like it was almost a, 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 a yelling match for anyone to get anything in a word in edgewise. And so I, I tell leaders, you know, how are you providing ways for people to contribute ideas in a, in a way that works for them, that you're, that you're not missing out on, on different voices. So whether that's um, adding a asynchronous component where you spend maybe the first t- 15 minutes sharing the brief, you know, asking if anyone has questions and then people then go contribute their thoughts and their brainstorming on a Google sheet, you know, or using Miro or different, you know, collaboration, you know, whiteboard tools or whatnot. Um, how are you pausing and asking people who haven't thought, so if A, paying attention to who's not speaking up, and then B, pausing the conversation and explicitly asking for their contributions in a way that's not going to make them feel called out, you know, and um, how do you, you know, use a simple strategy of just saying the terms yes and instead of but or no, whenever someone shares a point, and then you want to build upon that to make them feel like they're being valued and respected and heard. Um, So I mean, that's just one example, but like taking that data, seeing, okay, employees feels like the employees feel like their voices aren't being heard. And then where can we start? What's something we do every day? It's, it's have meetings. And then what are some behaviors that we can start changing and, and monitoring and tracking progress and then collecting that data, right? It could be super informal, but like, did I hear from every single person in the meeting today? Yes or no? Or no? And how many times did so-and-so speak up? How many times did so-and-so interrupt? Or how many times did I interrupt others? You know, and, and, and monitoring that so you can, you know, improve and track that progress and, and build on your strengths as you go who, uh two things who, who i have a comment and then i have a question i'll ask the question first who who would actually monitor that so you know what what i've tried to do with the podcast is i try to get it as tangible as possible because as i'm sure you know there are so many podcasts out here that are so macro and so broad 
And then you listen, you listen and you walk away. It's like, uh, I don't really know what to do yet. Uh, so who exactly, right? Because I'm thinking practically. I'm thinking in a real-time setting, a founder, a leader, a manager is going to be listening to this podcast and like, okay, we all are facilitating here. We all have something to say. We all are going to be really intently trying to make sure we're bringing value to this meeting. Is this an executive assistant? Are we pulling in someone else from the outside to come in and, and record this data? Is this, is, this, uh, is this someone like I remember recently um, for a company that I was internally a part of where I was the VP of people before Corona hit, I remember I was pushing very hard for us to, to invest in an executive assistant part-time just to literally be the one that would take notes throughout the meeting around understanding and unpacking a lot of the things that you were just talking about as well as understanding at a macro level what was said because we were so invested in the meeting that at times um, certain tactics, certain nuances, certain certain really great ideas were not being unpacked and understood. So tangibly, who do you think would be, you know, recording that data, understanding, you know, the interruption count? Who do you think would be responsible for that? I mean, it's definitely going to vary on a case by case basis, but I'm thinking in the case of this, like in this example about, you know, include someone, a leader trying to lead more inclusive meetings, um, you know, a, a, a really inclusive leader is, is going to do more of the listening, not the talking anyway. And yep. so um, like the leader, him or herself should be the one, you know, just having a little tally and how many times it, did my teammates interrupt each other or like figure out like, what's that, what's that one data point I'm going to be, you know, monitoring this meeting and just, you know, quietly just do it on their own. Um, then I've heard about situations where, you know, some companies, they record all meetings and, and then give, you know, real time feedback in that meeting. Like, for example, like, you talked, you know, 45 minutes of this hour long meeting. Like that's really, I mean, that's like super techie and specific, but if that is the prerogative of, of a certain, you know, team and a leader to have more inclusive meetings, then you could get that, that specific, you know, and there's voice to text technology. And of course you need to, the team needs to be on board. I'm not, I'm not advocating for, you know, recording uh, employee conversations against their will by any means i'm just saying it can be as extreme and detail and and tech automated as that example too but yeah a simple tally you know just the leader kind of keeping track um uh, and then you know being creative and also no I, i'm not advocating for every single meeting to be recorded or be tracking all this data every time you have a meeting i'm talking about when a a, a change is, is at the onset, we've identified, you know, employees' voices aren't being heard. I can make this change right now in my next meeting. And this is where I'm going to start. And, and getting that, uh, you know, A, communicating that to your team shows that, wow, like that data that we, that survey we filled out, that data is actually being used. They're actually listening to us. They're actually trying, they're putting some accountability to what we express. Like, and that, that's huge for trust in leadership and just like trust in the company and making employees feel like these data collection methods are actually worth their time and, and honest answers. Right. And then, and then the second piece is, you know, getting them on board, letting them know that you're going to start doing that and watching how quickly their behaviors change as well. You know, whenever people know that they're being monitored, um, you know, and if we're all kind of focusing on the same shared goal of, of having more voices be heard in meetings, you know, like you'll see how quickly that, that change is actually possible. And, you know, the, the adage, you don't, you can't manage what you don't measure, like start measuring it and see how quickly things start, start changing, you know, be really powerful. A hundred percent. And then, and then also what I would add on to that too, is for like anyone that's going to be inevitably listening, um, you know, for me, and this is a little outside the box and, and not super tech, you know, technical and, 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 and logical for most people, but, you know, I like to live into, I like to live into those that are going to be inevitably a part of the meeting. I like to live into what structure style of the meeting works best for them, right? Like for me, for me, I feel like a lot of leaders kind of sit in this ivory tower and they feel like because they have ran multiple startups or ran X amount of meetings and they know certain structures or processes and, and things that, that are going to go well, but inevitably... I like to kind of put my employees first to some degree and really live into the meeting structure and the meeting design that's really going to work best for them in this moment. 
um, and and always be open to being fluid and al- allowing those 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 strategies and those structures to change. Um, I know it's a little bit outside the box, but I, I do think uh, that is a good idea if if you want to create that inclusive environment and, and make and make your employees genuinely feel like they are a part of uh, of, of of having something to do with of the meeting structure and, and having uh, a meeting design that's really going to get the best out of them. Um, the, the comment I was going to say is, and, and I wanted to get your thought on this as well. Do you have empathy? And I, because I do, but do, do you have empathy for leaders that are, how do I want to put this? Leaders that, leaders that what we're talking about and, and what we're describing are not supernatural to them and, and, and doesn't make sense for them to think thoughtfully about. Because the argument that I've been hearing recently as I've been doing a lot of work within the startup world and, and, and smaller businesses is where, where our heads are so focused on building product and scaling. And inevitably, I've heard even some pushback where people were saying, look, all these things that you're talking about, Anthony, and the big bucket of employee experience, they're all great, but they're not necessarily correlated to building a bigger business. Me and you both know that the research shows that's not true. But from their perspective, they're saying, I can build a big business without focusing on any of this stuff. And because frankly, a lot of this stuff is stressing me out. It doesn't come natural to me. I don't understand it. I don't really, part of my friends don't really give a shit about it. Like, like what are your, what are your thoughts when you hear that feedback? If you ever heard that feedback, because I think that is a thought. I think those feelings are being circled around at times. And, and, and I have empathy for that to a certain degree. Um, do I, believe in it would i take a client one like that would i want my brand to associate themselves and, and ourselves with a company like that probably not but when you hear that do you do you have any empathy do you have anything to say to a founder that may have that perspective uh what are your thoughts i, I think it's an interesting way you ask the question because my my one example so if i were just to answer the question and not use my example i would say yes you know i i, I have empathy for those who might feel overwhelmed by, and, and, and not overwhelmed, not only overwhelmed by the amount of work that can be and should be done to provide a good employee experience, but also um, how it's contradictory and in, in direct opposition a lot of times to what you're trying to do for the bottom line. You know, like bottom line, you should try to get away with paying a, an employee as little as possible, even if that's not. A mm-hmm. living wage for that person to be able to sustain, a, you know, their their family's basic needs on, and 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 that's disgusting to me. So like, and 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 sorry, but I'm let, I'm letting my own my own views interfere. But no, please, um, please, no, I, I love that. But like, there, it's not sustainable. And you're absolutely right. We have that. We know that research, and we know that putting people first is still good for the bottom line over the long run. Um, but the empathy piece is interesting because my example I have is um, from, you know, a leader in the tech startup space. Um, and, and this this guy, he was giving me advice as a, as a mentor, as someone who has been successful with starting and exiting multiple companies, um, and as a potential investor or someone, you know, who could, you know, he's, he's promised what I'm trying to do. And he's told me, that he does not care about diversity and inclusion. He just doesn't care. And, you know, he has a daughter and the best way that he can be a good leader to her is by giving her the same shot as anyone else and just doesn't, doesn't believe in it. Doesn't, doesn't see the, the value in it at all. And, you know, I was so taken aback by that because him telling me that as a woman, like, is him essentially saying he doesn't care about me and he doesn't recognize that, you know, women and minorities, we're not starting on a level playing field and that things aren't like life, life in the workplace is not a meritocracy. Um, and there is work that needs to be done. So like, he doesn't see that. And I wouldn't say I have empathy for that ignorance. Um, but I, I recognize it as he just doesn't understand yet. Um, and, you know, it's, it's hard to be in that position of like, 
okay, not only do I disagree, but this is actually harmful for my own success in this space. Um, because you're saying that to not care about this concept, you don't care about my experience or my peers experience or other minorities experience um, because it, it, it is very different, especially in the startup space. Um, so I don't know, like maybe I don't have empathy for those with that view. I think, I don't well, know, it's, that's hard, it's hard. No, see, I, I like, see, that's what I was asking for in the beginning, right? I like the fact that you were authentic and real about that and, and didn't, didn't kind of give me the same old typical fluff answer that I've, I've, I've had a lot because that's true. You know, it, it is okay to question if you have empathy because it's really hard to understand how someone can see that, see it from that lens. Um, I attribute it to, so I did a lot of work for two and a, for two and a half years. I like locked myself in a room and just researched and studied and spent a lot of money to bring in thought leaders around all things neuroscience. I wanted to understand surface level, but practical application around the synergies between neuroscience and employee experience, neuroscience and um, entrepreneurship, leadership, all things business. And one thing that I started to realize was a consistent, was a consistent, uh, you know, behavior and, and concept around neuroscience as it pertains to leadership it's this thing called like kind of the memory bank kind of concept and and how things kind of get locked into the memory bank and how the memory bank is connected to you know i forget i, I want to say it's in the 90 90 percent percentile but it's connected to a lot of your day-to-day -day behaviors and your thought processes and your decision making and and where that comes from connected to your subconscious and where you learned it from like 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 things that you see things that you smell things that you taste things that you hear it's all kind of getting processed into the subconscious within inevitably gets locked into this memory bank. And when I learned these, these, these very surface level, but important concepts for me, empathy started to sink in deeper. And I was like, Oh, when I hear what this investor or this guy said to you, I, what I hear is his dad, his first internship, his first couple businesses, his mom, his uncle, some TV show, you know, his first mentor in the investing space, someone along the way over the last 30 years of his life put some sort of information in his head that he has not reprogrammed out. Like he, he has not, you know, put enough information in there to drive it out of his memory bank. So someone in there put some information that locked so deep inside of his subconscious that now his decision-making, his perspectives are all driven around that one narrative. And I think that's incredibly interesting from the lens that I do have empathy around that. Now, do I give him a pass and an excuse? No, because you and I both know you can retrain and reprogram your brain to believe and think and work in any way you want it to. So it takes desire to do that. But I do have empathy around why he or she, in certain examples, may feel like that is, is their natural kind of perspective and their outlook. Um, but then that's when, and I think what you're saying is, Dude, the, 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 the data is here. So if you're not, if you're, so what you're telling me is you're going to ignore the research, you're going to ignore the data, you're going to ignore the, the, the good human being common sense thing to do. Um, so I don't know if you have any final thoughts on that kind of perspective and, and the science behind it. I'm sure you have much deeper research and understanding about the science than I do. But from the surface level research that I've done, when I started diving into that, I was like, oh, that's the correlation. Oh, that's the that's the empathy that I needed to kind of understand how these leaders are doing what they're doing. And now it's, now it's my job as someone that's going to be working with these leaders to build that emotional glue, to break through that, to break through that glass, if you will, and really get to the heart and to the center and to the core of what I think the inevitable issues are and, and start to get my, get my shovel, if you will, and start to dig, dig out all of that bullshit <laughs> if, if I'm being honest of all of that junk that is locked into those memory banks and those subconscious, because it's, it's not going to be productive for the long, the long tail of this company. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on yeah, all that. I mean, the, the final like point I want, I would make about it is, you know, it's, it's a competitive Please. advantage. Like millennials want DNI Gen Z is going to be demanding it. Our, our country in the U S we're going to be a more like, 
more diverse. I think I have seen stats like as soon as the year of 2040, um, white will no longer be the majority in this country. Like the diversity is an inevitability and to not have um, a, a, a system, a philosophy, a strategy in place to, to meet the needs of our diverse, not only workforce, but customer, you know, population, um, you know, it's, it's going it, to, like, he cannot care now, maybe get away with it for a few more years, but his businesses are not going to, they're going to lose compared to his, his competitors that are doing DE&I right. And so I mean, that's really what it comes down to. And, and those are terms that I think, if, if, I don't know if it's empathy as much as perspective taking. And I go there with, with my, with my clients or my audiences that might not see it and just say, you know, this is, this is necessary to your, to your future viability. Yeah. And that's where I was actually going to go where I was going to go, where I have a, 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 an awakening of my perspective or empathy, whatever word we want to use. What I realized is let's say, let's say in life objectively, and this is, there's no objective data to back this up, but I'm just, I'm just spitballing here. Let's say it's possible to build a hundred million dollar brand without thinking about anything we're talking about. Right. And that's okay for him or that's okay for someone else. And let's say there's a 7% margin on that hundred million and he's taking, I don't know, he's taking $600,000 out of that set, out of that, out of that 7 million of the inevitable hundred. Let's say that's what it is. And that $600,000 for him is great. He's living in a nice, beautiful house. He's taking care of his wife, taking care of his kids. He's happy with himself. He's a decent human being, not breaking the law. That is a, is a possible real thing. And that's what I'm starting to realize, which is like some people are, that are trying to push back, they're like, hey, I'm building what I want to build over here and I'm good. Now, where me and you differ, not differ, where me and you agree and we differ with them is, yeah, I understand, but like, don't you want to be a good person? Like, don't you care about this stuff? And and then at a competitive business lens, like, don't you want to like scale and grow and build inevitably the biggest, strongest, most respected, most empathetic, most you know, you know, uh, human centered organization you can? Is that is that like a is that a thing you care about? Like, isn't that common sense? But then again, like I said. I can see the shift of a perspective where someone could say, hey, we got a 7% profit margin on a $100 million business. It's kicking me 600000 cash. I'm taking care of my wife, my kids. I'm a decent human being. I'm fine. I respect what you guys are doing over there, but I'm not going to really trust myself out to do any of these other initiatives. Um, so... I mean, it's, it's risk, it's it's risk mitigation, right? Look what happens when you don't yeah, like 100%. You know, Uber was a, was a, is a unicorn and, and look what happened when they weren't, you know, looking at the impact of their non-diverse culture on, on employees. And then even more importantly, PR, you know, they, it took a major hit whenever the reports started coming out yep. with how women were being treated there and the toxic max masculinity going on. And that's the exact type of behavior and culture and workplace that DEI, you know, strives to eradicate. Now let me now let me jump to this now. So now we're we've moved away from like the, you know, I wanted to really unpack and understand your organizational psychology background and 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 some of those 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 synergies and those pillars that I think a lot of companies need to understand. Let me move into a couple of perspectives I have around DE&I that I want to kind of share with you and get your two cents on and see what we can maybe unpack for some of the listeners. Before, before everything was happening in this country that I think we both know what I'm correlating to and what I'm, what I'm speaking of as it pertains to race. And, and before there were certain aspects of, of DE&I correlated to women, even before all that, I remember seven years ago, six years ago, I was diving into diversity and inclusion around ways it can help strategically of a business. So I was super fascinated with diversity of thought, like purposely bringing in someone from different, purposely putting together a unit of, t of a team from different departments to work on a product to make it better and not having any not having any judgments on where those thoughts are coming from, but living into their differences. 
and 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 embracing that. I was I I was so fascinated with the idea of doing that. I was fascinated with the diversity aspect and the inclusion aspect of someone with a with a with a, a legal background where they've committed crimes at 19 but they're now 35 and giving them opportunities. I was so interested with that. I was interested with and this is my circumstance with someone that does not ha- I do not I I I did I do not have a bachelor's degree. I started a company at 19. I'm now 30 years old. I've been an entrepreneur my entire life. I have real-time tangible experience in the world that I can back. You can get you can put me in the room with any executive and I will hold my own. Uh, and I firmly believe that I do not have the PHR, which is one of the biggest and the best kind of traditional certifications in the HR space. But you put me in any conversation with an HR leader, I can hold my own. I can I can deliver things. Yet to this day, Victoria, to this day, I I could I'll take you over my resume once we get done this call. But to this day, I don't get respect that I believe I genuinely like I I, I deserve. You know, I, I and you hear the passion in my voice. There's, there's no reason in the world why someone that with a with a resume of mine should not be able to have opportunities just flying at them. And so, from diversity of that lens, I I really was living into the research and some of the data and some of the some of the tactics around respecting someone with real time experience, respecting someone with a diverse background that is not super traditional, respecting what that means, and living into that. And, and how it can be super beneficial for innovation and, 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 and productivity within your company and living into the fact that they're different, but they can bring in a different voice. So when I say all that, why I wanted to say to you is what I think is a hot topic right now. And, and people like you and other people that have done this work for years, I am not putting you guys in this category. So please don't take any disrespect. But what I'm, what I'm seeing right now as a hot topic is the African-American, obviously, issue, as well as the women issue. And they're ignoring the other parts of DE&I that I think are also very important as well. And so I do want to touch on the color aspect and definitely the gender aspect. But there, aren't there some other categories to DE&I from a strategic business lens that may or may not, and I believe it's may, are just getting ignored and, and no one's really putting any thoughtful energy around it? Or do you think right now it's not the time to talk about um, I mean... Companies that do DEI right are already they already have things in place, um, and they're. I'm I'm talking about the majority of the companies that are not doing any of it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's DEI. There's there's two concepts that I had to adopt to keep my own sanity in this space because I I like things moving quickly. I like seeing. You know, I like relentlessly working towards results and, you know, making, making stuff happen. Like I, 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 that's one of my company values, one of my core values. Like I have a very strong bias for action and I really okay. struggled in the DEI space getting started because it's like, well, why aren't there more women in leadership roles? Like, why can't we have more diverse representation on boards? You know, like, you know, our local population of, of the black community is 30%. We should have that in the company. Like let's hire more black people again like, and like frustrated with all the barriers just one after the next that come up without you know we can't make progress that quickly and some companies have to have succeeded right like that's still it still is very possible that's another conversation for another time um but like this idea of maturity like where is a company at this moment on their DEI journey and a lot of companies right now they're babies you know they're just getting started um they've known they needed something and with the death of george floyd and the social unrest that has resulted in this this pivotal moment we're in our history and society like now now is the time while all these companies that were sitting on the bench at hem high are finally putting action to that now the maturity level babies right like we're just getting started we just gave some people some um accountability and responsibility to start our teams to you know write our statements to figure out what our overall strategy is and in that regard does it make sense to tackle all the areas of diversity all at once absolutely not because what then what are you actually accomplishing you know and like let's start somewhere and a lot of companies right now are starting with race they're starting with particularly how they can support the local black community their black employees um i've lost a lot of business like potential business to my black peers and colleagues and I'm loving it I'm loving it you know like like this is where we're gonna start 
We need to be bringing in black voices to help us do this work. And, and this is a great starting point. And I love it. Now, is that where to end? Yeah. Right. Absolutely not. Like, like this is, there's, you're absolutely right. There are so many other areas of diversity, you know, I'm looking at an article right now talking about how companies like Apple and Google and IBM and Costco and Starbucks and Chipotle are no longer requiring four-year degrees because they recognize that they're losing out on key talent by having that requirement that yes there is some correlation with um you know skills or you know potential with education but it is not a causation and it's not the only contributing factor and experience in a lot of ways does hold a higher predictive of um higher prediction ability of performance right and so companies that recognize that they're already starting to change their systems and their hiring policies and practices to take away that requirement so they can open up that pool to untapped resources. And it's once again, comes down to competitive advantage companies that do DEI right, you know, look at things and, and change their practices around not only education, but, you know, realizing, Oh my gosh, half of our workforce has kids under the age of six. What are we doing to provide support? for our working parents right now. It's half of our workforce. And so they start pushing out things in that regard. Or, you know, how, how can we uh, make sure that our, our LGBTQ population feels more supportive outside of the one month of the year that we're supposed to actually, you know, give recognition and reference to, to their experience, you know? And, and DE&I done right for the more mature companies does does incorporate all the different areas of diversity, all of them. Um, but it just takes time so, and it depends on where they're at on their journey. And and it's also the other main, the big truism I had to accept pretty early on in doing this work is, is incremental progress and moving the needle at such a corporate, you know, a jargon phrase that I hear so much related to, to DE&I especially, but it is, you know, and it's celebrating those slight moves on the needle and how many more even individuals, you know, in a, in a training, can we get to think a little differently about this or start using more inclusive language or, um, and it's, it's those incremental successes that need to be celebrated. So, yeah. So, so that was beautiful, right? That was beautifully said. And I appreciate that. I thought, I thought for a second there, you were, uh, I'm not about to answer directly. And then you brought it back and you said, hold on now, I'm going to answer it. <laughs> you, you got to it. So I really appreciate that. I do not differ with you. But here's a, a caveat or something I would add. And this is coming from the heart here. This is coming directly from the hip. All right. So brace yourself, guys, because I, I, I believe this and I'm an African-American male that's saying this. I, I'll give you a couple of examples. I was offered and I've talked about this multiple times. It wasn't an official offer that came through my email. I was offered, though. I, I, someone connected with me, a dear friend that I've known for the few, a few years now, a mentor, reached out to me personally. They, so they know my background, Victoria. They know who I am. They know my skills. And they reached out to me and said, hey, there's a chief diversity and inclusion officer role at this startup. I think you'd be perfect for it. You should apply. This is probably a week and a half after the George Ford situation happened. I connected with the founder of that company. And to be respectful, the entire conversation was around. I'm trying to, you can see I'm trying to be thoughtful with my words here. Mm -hmm. It made me feel, let me just jump to the punchline actually, because I don't want to, I'm, I'm inevitably going to make a mistake and say something I'm going to regret. It made me feel like all they cared about was the fact yeah. that I was black. Yeah. And it pissed me off to my core. And what I tried to explain to my mother who didn't understand why I didn't take the opportunity or even live into the opportunity. What I tried to explain to my mother is said, mom, you know me, right? She's like, what do you mean? I said, mom, what do you mean? You raised me, you, 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 know, you know me, you know everything that I've been doing. Have you ever heard once in my life of Dee and I being such an important topic in my life where I've decided to spend resources and, and, and under, understand like core frameworks and like really be able to deliver the work and know the tools behind it and the methodologies behind it and be able to put 
structures and frameworks in place in an organization. Have you ever heard of that being part of my part of my work? She's like, no. And I was like, okay. So what made this company think that I'd be the best person for this job? I love it. She's like, well, (laughs) she's like, well, she's like, well, couldn't you come in and just, you know, make change from within? I said, I understand what you're saying, mom, and bless your heart. And I was like, mom, what do you think B and I work is? And she's like, well, isn't it about like helping women and black people? And I was like, that's my issue right there. It's so much deeper. Yeah. Now, I congratulate every company in the world right now of jumping on the bandwagon because of the moment. Because at the end of the day, what happened to George Floyd is not the first time it's happened, and it won't be the last time it's happened, and I'm glad that there is an awakening of this issue. But my problem, my issue, my perspective is I feel like these companies are checking a box. They're hiring you, potentially. They're hiring other people. They are checking a box, and my gut feeling and my gut tends to be right. 18 months to 24 months from now, the things that they're doing will not show up at the operational level long term. And that is my problem. That is, that is what irritates me. That is what pisses me off. That is what makes me feel super uncomfortable. And that is the point that I'm trying to make around the depth of diversity and inclusion and, and how so many brands are not thinking about that depth and thinking about the impact of that. Race and gender definitely plays a role. But there's so many other elements to it. And I, and I agree with your perspective around the, matru- the maturity of a company and things of that nature. But if you're going to start at the race and gender and you're going to make that a focal point, number one, don't check the box. Number two, really educate yourself. And then number three, don't let that be the only thing you do. Because I think, I genuinely believe, Victoria, that there are founders, leaders of companies that think like my mom, that think it literally is just color and gender. And that's it. And then they're checking a box and they're doing surface level shit. And so I'm going to calm down (laughs) and get your thoughts um, because I'm probably going to start freaking out. Um, I'm sure you have some thoughts and then, and then we'll, then we'll slowly wrap this up. Yeah. I mean, I, I see it happening. It's very interesting to be doing this work from the perspective of a white person, but a white woman. Right. And so um, I, and, and the example I shared before, you know, I, I said my, my peers and my colleagues, my, meaning my fellow DE&I practitioners who are also people of color. So they are very qualified to do this work. Um, and, exactly. And then they should be doing this work. Um, but the idea, I, I do fear about, and I see, you know, tokenism happening and I see, you know, roles being um maybe filled without the full understanding of, of what that entails and what are the resources that are going to be given to that person so a are we making sure that we're, we're hiring people based on their skill set and who they are i don't think it's an either or i think i think it is both um and then and then second are we giving them the resources to set them up for success and i think you can see pretty quickly the companies that answer those two questions correctly are are, are are putting more of their money where their mouth is versus the check the box, you know, but yeah, I'm, I'm going to be very curious to see how this all plays out. Um, and I, what I can continue to do is provide support to those in that, in those roles. So those who are leading up these efforts for the first time or revamping efforts and, you know, and, and figuring out how to, how to best drive that strategy moving forward um, and trying to be a, a great partner to, to those individuals is, is the role that I've been, I've been playing. Last comment that I'll make, and then I have a last question for you and then we'll wrap this up. I did not get to this question and what I, I, there's, I always like to do part two. So I definitely will bring you on. I know that we briefly talked about some collaboration. So let's definitely schedule another call to talk about what that looks like tangibly i know i talked to you about the collective that i'm starting so we'll talk about that um so we will definitely connect more because uh i'm not the type of person that brings someone on the podcast and then you never hear from me again so we will connect within the next couple weeks um comment and then a last question and then we'll wrap up comment i did not get to the part that you said where you're a white woman trying to trying to do great work around de and i right now on the backs of all these situations happening let me, a black man, be the first person to say this on the record. Um, and anyone that knows me knows I 
I will always win. Let me let me be a little bit arrogant here. Let me go back into my D1 football, young 19-year-old nature here. I will always win. So there's no canceling that can happen to me. <laughs> there is nothing that I will be okay. My family and I will always make it, all right? So let me be a little bit confident here. You are okay. I'm sure you've got potential backlash. I'm sure people have called you out, maybe. I'm sure you have maybe felt uncomfortable in your own skin. Me being a black man, that says you are more than entitled to speak about pillars, synergies, uh, not synergies, pillars, principles, methodologies, perspectives, actual frameworks and work. You are entitled. You have the right. You have the skill set. You have the background. You have the, you have the ability to go in and do this work and, 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 and talk about certain aspects around D and I that are authentic to you, that matter. Now, and, and also, you, I believe you have the right to share perspectives and research that you're seeing within the African-American community and present that to a company. Now, should you go as far as to try to say that you have experienced certain things? Obviously not. You're not of an course, African-American. Yeah, you don't, I, I, don't, I don't know if you're married or if you have a boyfriend. I don't know, you know you're, you're sexual. I don't know any of that information. And frankly, it's not... Um, it's not... Uh, um, it's not, uh, it's not, it's not my, uh, it's not my, my business. But what I will say is, um, you know, you may have some African Americans in your family. I don't, I don't know that dynamic, but at the end of the day, it's not, uh, your place to maybe go that far, but the majority of the work that go that is involved with this, you, you are the right person for that. You do have the right to do that. I've been seeing too many people turning down no, too many people speaking down and speaking negatively to the white women that have been doing the work around D&I and saying, why do they have those roles? I've even seen companies fire people that had a white person in that, in that position, not fire them because of a lack of deliverable, but fire them, fire them due to a lack of, um, they feel like it's not the most authentic decision to have them in place anymore and then replace them with an African-American. And so I just wanted to, 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 to toss that olive branch to you, tell you that you're okay, tell you that it's not a problem. And I, I hope that, I don't know if you've been feeling slighted or getting any backlash or negativity, or maybe you've been feeling a little weird about it yourself, but I just wanted to say that. Thank you. you for saying that, Anthony. I do appreciate that. I do appreciate that. Has anything been happening or you maybe that's not the time to share? Has any, maybe ha, have you been, I know you put that as one of the topics. So is there anything you wanted to share or touch on briefly about that? Just, you know, it's more of just my own, like acknowledging my own intersectionality. And also, you know, I do a lot of work with allyship and uh, I have a lot to say. And I've done a lot of work and research about men as allies for women. And it's just been a fascinating experience now flipping that script and learning how to be a better white ally for the black community and my black peers and colleagues. And I think it's just been very fascinating, you know, being told explicitly, like we decided to go with a black facilitator, a black peer. And as I said, I'm thrilled by that. I think I want, I want that to be happening right now. Um, but also, you know, just dealing with, with something that, you know, other minority groups have been dealing with this entire time, you know, all, all of history. So it's just fascinating. Um, it's humbling. And it's also an important experience that I want to continue using in my, you know, education and my trainings and the work I do. Um, because, I mean, it, it, once again, it's all intersectionality, right? At any moment, the, 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 strip, the script can flip and we all need the empathy and the tools to deal with whatever side of that we're, that we're on. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. So I just wanted to say that because that is my truth. That is honestly how I feel. Um, again, I'll make it clear again, because someone, uh, someone told me today, I may not say something like that. Yeah. I don't really care. I'll be okay. Trust me. Everything's going to work out for me. So, um, if this is just the truth, uh, and, uh, uh, if anyone decides to give you any crap, please send them my way. <laughs> we can have a talk about it. Thank you. Um, yeah. Um, where can uh where can people find you uh you know throw out any plugs if, if that that you feel is important to throw out there 
Um, I know you have decided to jump, embark on the entrepreneurial journey over the last year or so. So plug anything you want and then we'll wrap this up. Absolutely. So you can find me on my website, mattinglysolutions.com, M-A-T-T-I-N-G-L-Y. Also, I have a pretty, you know, active LinkedIn account. um, So connect with me on there, uh, Victoria Mattingly PhD. Uh, And then also I have a a, a online course all about allyship. um, And I, I'm so happy to give listeners, you know, a 25% off voucher to that. Um, So if you want to come um, check that out we'll I'll, I'll share a link with Anthony if you wanted to put it in the course notes and we can share that with the listeners as well yeah please give me that uh give me that uh that percentage uh that code rather and then we will definitely link that in the show notes and I and I really do appreciate you coming on today. yeah thank you so much for having me 100 percent. I will be reaching out to you shortly here to to schedule a follow-up call because we have a you have a lot to unpack maybe or of some synergies and, and I really appreciate this. Absolutely. Thank you for doing this. Thanks for getting this message out there. All right. We'll talk soon.